Just a quick note before the episode begins. You'll notice that at the beginning of the interview there is a rather substantial echoing effect from Dr. Yerrington's audio. This was due to a connection error with Zoom. I noticed it straight away because I was hearing Dr. Yerrington's voice twice in my ear, which made things very difficult to understand. However, I've edited it down as much as possible to make it as easy for you guys to hear as possible. However, I didn't want to interrupt Dr. Yerrington as he gave the first account of his um, experience with his patient, Frank. So... I let him continue until a reasonable time where I could stop him and we could restart the call. It will fix itself shortly, so please bear with me. I hope you enjoy this episode. Um, that was one of the stories I wrote to answer a question, I think, on Quora, right? Right. That's right, yeah. 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 It was your experience with the um, with your patient who was able to identify serial numbers. Yes, uh, Frank, um, Frank. Frank was a, it was a crazy case. Um, he, he brought to the OR with almost no information on him, and as he was dead. This was a, you know, the football had been launched, the zero buzzer had been hit. Um, and we got him to the, the OR and we crashed onto bypass. Um, and we were on pass for a while, like I think just on two hours. And then we had a, a pretty rocky, rocky transition. I think we, think we worked on about an hour, stabilized heart beating, Tim to the, the ICU. Um, that was also prolonged for a little bit. And then honestly, you know, I'm home that day and I thought, you know what, it's okay. Okay. Cause I've done bad hearts before people die and, and all that sort of stuff. And then I just thought I'd mounds in the ICU the next morning. Um, but the, um, and I, I, I turn the story if I said it, that was the next morning, but in reality, it was actually the morning after that because, because. Uh, Frank's case was at the end of a 33-hour shift for me, and when I went home, I didn't have to work that next day. So uh, the the next day for me was the next day that I went in, which is almost 30 hours later. Later, and, and I went in, you know, I I got into the hospital about 5:30. I round in the ICU, then go get my ORs ready. Um, um, and there was Frank, Frank eating breakfast, and let me tell you, that was. Like it was a double take, because there was like like there's no way this human being should be eating breakfast. He should have tubes all in him and him and the rest of the stuff stuff. And as soon as I opened my mouth, he knew who I was, which was also so shocking. Because you know I know I had an eye badge on me, but I'm standing, you know, you know, further than we are are really apart. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, how does he recognize? He's like, I like I recognize this. And so, so that was the start of the freak out, right? And uh, first kind of rolled her eyes at me. And then when we talked outside, I was like, he, he remembers OOR. He doesn't shut up about it. Um, and, you know, I, I had had recall before operations um, where for whatever reason, normally it was, it was massive blood loss. So if a patient under anesthesia has, has a ton of blood loss, then the anesthetic levels in their blood will fall sharp, sharply, and that, that can bring them back up to consciousness. 
And then as, as you get anesthesia levels back up, they go back back to unconsciousness. Um, and generally, the patients don't fight, fight, move, or do anything because they're chemically paralyzed. So they don't ever, ever respond. The only thing you see is the uh, the physiologic markers for the body's metabolism sharply rise. So the production of carbon dioxide, the heart, the heart rate, blood pressure, pressure, or anything that you're measuring sharply rise to give you an indication that physiologically the body is experiencing um, trauma or pain or, or uh, at least sensing something. Even if it's just at a final level, if the body's sensing something, and that lets you know, know to turn anesthetic level, level. But in massive traumas, and I did a lot of trauma in 2003, 4, and 5, 5 at L State University, um, you can sometimes see entire shifts in blood volume in 20 minutes. So, like, imagine replacing an entire patient's blood volume in 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. You also have to replace all the anesthetics. They are all, all on the floor. Mm-hmm. <laughs> blood. So... That seen many, many times, and no, sometimes the patient will say that if they remember hearing protein or, or uh, pressure or, um, you know, things of that matter, or, or remember weight or face is, is another one I had, um, because I didn't just investigate my uh, uh, case as part of a team, team OSU that uh, we did Sentinel events, so whenever, whenever, Anything, anything went wrong, no matter how small, it created a sentinel event, and then we would do an error analysis to find out what went wrong, right? Um, so, you know, Frank was kind of, you know, uh, it kind of caught me off guard that that first day, that, that first morning, right? Right. But then the operating rooms, I heard from from some of the in in the circuit nurses that there was a guy who remembered everything from his cardiac surgery and i'm and i'm like that can't be can't be him so i talked to some of the nurses and they're like oh yeah he remembers the conversation she remembers some of the, some of the things said um and then one of the nurses told me the weird weirdest thing is th- that he remembers floating floating above us right above the or lights just staring staring at him and i'm that's not possible. My brother was a, a senior re- resident at the time, and, and he's actually an anesthesiologist in Indiana. And I talked about this with him with him time, and he's like, he's like, you know, he says, you know, have you ever been waking up, up from a dream where, where someone's talking to you, and you incorporate what they're talking about into the dream? Mm-hmm. And I, I said, sure, you know, I understand that state of consciousness and all that sort of stuff. Um, and he he kind of blew it off at the time with me, and I said I said you know the, the, something eerie about the way he talks. It's so matter of factly. And Frank Frank was was not the bright bulb in the. I you got the idea idea you know he did the, the jobs, but nothing was complicated, and, and that's kind of the, kind of the thing he was. And so so anyway, the same day I went back because I gotten a little you know. I've gotten a few a few tidbits about the lights, and so I went back in the very evening, and I and I asked if it was doing and everything. And, um, we talked very briefly because it was like seven or eight o'clock at night, I think, that first day. And um, he he said, "I really want to thank you because you never gave up on, up on." He goes, "I know the other other people were giving, but you never gave up." And I I have a saying that that I've said, you know. If you're good enough at anesthesia, you can go take a piece of st- steak from your local chop-, chop house, 
resuscitate it, put a tube in it, put it in the ICU, and claim it's alive, it's alive 24 hours. He remembers me saying that line. <laughs> and I had said, said it, I go, oh, he deserves a chance. I mean, I told the surgeon, I go, I get it, it's a disaster, but let's at least get him get him back to the ICU and let him die there. Hmm. You know, um, that, that way they can say goodbye, goodbye, they, you know, you know we have done our job as medical people. Um, um, yeah, no, he remember, remembered the steakhouse comment, uh, and actually he remembered the, I said, 54-ounce porterhouse. <laughs> and I was just, just like, you really do remember that? And he's like, oh, yeah, he goes, I remember it was like, uh, it was like listen to a radio that just, you know, I can't change the channel. That was another description. Um, it really, really kind of freaked out. So my wife also did hearts. Um, so my wife, my wife, and my both anesthesiologists, and we kind of all went, went through Ohio State at almost the same time. Um, she was a couple of years ahead. My brother, a couple of years behind. And so, so you know, I, we talked about. I talked with with her, and my 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 up colleagues, and my my mentors about recall. I had done phone calls with people people about recall. He was just so matter of fact, and he wasn't mad about it at all. I'm like, I'm like, dude, we your chest wide open, you searing pain. He's like, I felt nothing. <laughs> He's like, I don't remember any of that. There was there was no pain. And I'm like, okay, okay. Um, but yeah, so then uh, second day, I, day I went in the main, and he, he was uh, getting his one line discharge, and he was actually 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 moved from from the bed to sitting place. And that's when he told me, he goes, they don't believe, believe me. They don't believe I was awake. And I said, well. I go. You got to remember, far side. It's not very comfortable for us to realize that sometimes people people remember in the operating room. I go. There's a lot of people that they got to live the next 25 years of their career, including me, with, with the idea I'm doing a really good job and people aren't awake during surgery. Mm, mm, and I understand that and that and that's he actually said. He goes. Well, he goes. You check the serial numbers on the top of those lights. And then he read read the mouth and it was seven eight digit each. And I was like, like, okay, because that's that's actually when I went, all right, this guy's off his rocker, right? And so, so I went out, and she, the nurse, funny, is like, she goes, did he say the serial numbers first? Oh, yep. <laughs> and he, he said, she goes, I wrote them down, and so I looked at, you know, hers, and I, and I they were really the same. So I actually went back in. I said, Frank, read those serial numbers again, and they were exactly exactly what she'd written her paper. paper. I was tired. Uh, had uh, I was over actually in the James Hospital, which is not where the hearts are done at all. At all, day. and so I entered here 12 to 15 hours of triple room coverage. And at the end of the end of the day, on my way to the, to the garage, I have to cross through where that hospital part is. And I thought, you know, maybe maybe I'll just go. And, have a and then I you. lost my nerve. I said, I actually don't want to know. Uh, um. Third day, I wake up. Frank's leaving leaving the ICU that day. Um, I didn't really talk to him. I just said hi. I signed off on the chart because he was leaves leaving ICU. I had done my, my full anesthetic care, you know, checked all the box boxes so the people are half happy, right? And that day, I couldn't get it out of my mind. I couldn't get out of my mind. I couldn't get out of my mind. And about about two o'clock in the afternoon. I just went in there, pulled the damn damn lights out of the stool, still stood up on the thing, and I went and looked at the serial number number on manufacturers, and it was like 15, 20 digits long. And I was like, I was like, 
okay. <laughs> you know, no problem. Then I looked, and up closer to the center of the, of the lights, the OSU serial number sticker. And that's what he had rem- remembered on each one. And I just went... That was it. It, it matched perfectly. That matched perfect. So, so clearly, Frank had an out-of-body experience. Hmm. And clearly, he stuck staring at those numbers. <laughs> I mean, there is no other, no other way. The guy worked at OSU. He, 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 I believe he was like an hour, an hour and a half south of Central Central America. Central uh, Ohio is where he was from. Um, he had come up through a, through a deal, which is a hospital that's 55 minutes south of us. Um, and, and he came into the, into the ER, wrapped up, basically up to the OR's dead. And sometimes we get, we get cardiations like that, that. And, you know, if you get them and they still have a blood pressure, which are, which he, with compressions, we, we, we do everything, right? Um, you know, sometimes we do, we do, especially in America, but, um, you know, that's, that's what happened. And this was like 2000, 2000 I want to 2004 when this happened, 2003, 2004, it was right in there. Um, might, might've been early 2005, but I, but I have this. Recollection, it was late 2004, or, or late 2003, early 2004. But I think it, it was in the winter, because I remember, I think it was cold outside during, during uh, uh, when this happened. But, but that's really, you know, it, um, I'm not, not uh, I, I can tell you after that experience, I did, I did, did really about neuroscience, consciousness, how the brain works, how how our antics work. Um, you know, about a year after that, the uh, the BIS monitor monitor was uh, invented, and the BIS monitor goes on the forehead here, and it is a really really poor pulse EKG EEG. So it's measuring the electrical activity in the brain, and what we use use it for is a, a simple sinusoidal curve, which which is consciousness head. And right about 60 is asleep. So, so we get them, get them right below 60, and then that way we can maintain anesthesia so that they're not awake, awake, have no memories, and we have record of it on, on EEG. Mm-hmm. And to, from my understanding, one who has, who has had a BIS properly used with a level below 60 has ever had any recall, recall in the operating room. Now, I've done traumas with the BIS on, and massive blood blood loss. I've seen it flip flip up to ninety and flip down to fifty. So I I now I, I now have seen visual confirmation of what we used to get by just our re stories is in the OR. You can actually see, see it happening with the BIS monitor, which is really cool. We did not have not have a BIS on that wasn't of the the OR normalcy at that time time. Um, now that's a monitor that's used much much more frequently. Um, so yeah, I mean, actually, when I started anesthesia, we didn't really use entitled CO2. Uh, we just used oxygen, and now it's routine. Team user both carbon, carbon dioxide, oxygen. So, do you have any questions? Yes, uh, but I wanted to say just before I didn't want to interrupt you, um, but we're having a couple of audio issues. Oh, okay, okay, Brilliant. okay. So you can you can hear me much better now. I can hear you perfectly. Yeah, your your audio was kind of repeating itself half a second after you oh. said something. So it was very, did very you get like, most like of the, that, that. Oh, Did yeah, you get most the, of the story, though? Yeah, I could understand it perfectly, yeah. Okay. I'll just, yeah, so that's, that's fine. First yeah. off, were, were there any parts that were unclear? 
And, and this is, it's really funny. I knew this phone call was coming up. I talked to my wife this weekend in bed. We were uh, watching Ozarks and um, she saw this on my calendar and she was just like, she's like, do you remember much more than the story? And I was like, no. And I, I kind of had just talked about this with her on our couch downstairs. Um, and she's like, does it still freak you out? And I said, no, I said, the older I've gotten, actually, the less it freaks me out. And I said, it's almost like the, the more okay it is that, that there's, uh, that, that there's something else beyond the five senses and the consciousness while we're awake. And I go that actually, you know, in some ways it's kind of comforting over time, I think, mm-hmm. you know, so. so does that experience then kind of point you towards the direction, which is kind of the position I am more inclined to believe that consciousness maybe is separate from the brain in some way? Uh, so in the last decade and a half, I have read quite a lot on neuroscience and consciousness itself. And, you know, there's been a quite a lot of research in anesthesia, like how does anesthesia actually work? And, you know, I come from a physics background, even though I, I was an English major and I ended up writing and stuff, but my first love was physics and I wanted to be a physics professor. And so I see the world often in mathematics and physics, and I and I understand um, I, I understand relatively up, relativity pretty good, and, and quantum mechanics actually better. Um, and it um, I, I got to the point of understanding that the human brain doesn't operate in a binary system because it would not allow for it would not allow for consciousness like we have it, and so you know, you, you need more, and I try to explain it simply, you need more bandwidth in decision logic than a primary zero and one. You need a, a yes, a no, a maybe, and none of it. And if you have all four of those states, which you do in quantum entanglement, then consciousness itself could simply be all of the neurons all in the yes, no, maybe, nothing state where in that next moment, it could be this, but it could be this. And it's in that intertwining moment that consciousness lives where the, you know, for, for simple uh, uh, quantum mechanics, you know, the particle is in the bucket and the particles outside the bucket at the exact same time. But when you look at it, it's only one place. Mm. So if consciousness is, the capability of it being in both places at exactly the same time until you look at it, then consciousness is always that, that, that step right behind time unfolding. And I, I kind of think of it in that way. And if, if that's what consciousness is, then the sensory apparatus that we have might not be the five senses that we call senses. Those might not be the only senses we have those might be the easily measurable senses. I can measure light. I can measure sound. I can even measure olfactory chemicals. I can measure time or touch, pressure, temperature on the skin. Right. Um, you know, it's uh, taste is a taste is a hard one because um, you might think an orange tastes one way and I think it tastes another way, but each one of us given enough oranges will both agree that this tastes like to us, an orange, mm. right? Mm. And so 
you know, I, I think that there's more senses like taste out there where you experience the world in, in one way. And, you know, I think everybody at some point has gotten an eerie feeling that whatever is about to come next, they should pause. And it doesn't matter, you know, whether it's a complete freak out. Like I, I was at an intersection with my girlfriend when I was, so this is in medical school, the like fourth year of medical school and the light turned green and I went to go and she screamed stop and nothing happened for like a second and a half. And then this car went <laughs> right through the intersection. And I went, holy shit. And I'm like, did you see that coming? Cause I didn't see it coming. It did. I don't think he even had headlights on. Mm. And so as we went, she's like, no, I just knew it was coming. <laughs> so I'm thinking maybe she heard it and I didn't hear it, you know, mm. but it was so distant and so far off that there's, I'm just like, there's no way. Right. But yeah, then you but think you about it and you're like, okay, yeah. in that moment, her consciousness was aware of something that maybe she didn't know she was hearing. Hmm. But part of her brain was putting things together going, there's an engine approaching you at high speed, hmm. you know, but it really freaked me out. And had she not been with me, I'd have gotten in a car wreck. So, you know, but I think everybody has those moments in time where they just know, you know, in sports, if somebody can do that consistently, we call them uh, in the zone or a great player or a playmaker. Right. And all they are is just experiencing time in a certain manner that is just a little bit better than everybody around them. And so what if it's not just time? What if it's also space? What if it's matter and energy? What if it's, you know, life and death? What if there are senses in those places that we can't physically measure easily? You know, but I think there's an awareness out there that, you know, there's more. And when you talk to like Buddhist monks, because I was into martial arts in my 20s, and you talk to monks and, and martial artists and stuff, and they're like, sure, when you turn all of this off and you turn inward, there's still something there. And, you know, that the greatest explanation I've ever had was a, a Buddhist monk that, you know, when you really reach the highest level of meditation, you can. There is no time, there is no space, there is no gravity. Um, there's no forward, there's no backwards, but you are still in a place that is filled with radiance and existence and color. And, uh, it, it is, you know, and you know, it's all coming from within and all you, all you have to do is turn around, turn inward. And he explained it. Imagine being in a huge room that it has a yellow, warm glow to it. And you're floating in the center you have no body, but you are in the center everywhere you look at the same time. And the one place you're trying to look is inside and you can't look there, <laughs> but that's the one place. And if you're sitting there, it doesn't matter in the real world, whether it's two minutes or two hours, no time matters or anything because you discarded all the senses except for consciousness and consciousness. You can't look at, you can't be conscious and see your own consciousness at the same time. Mm. And so in eyes. that, yeah. right. In that way, it, um, it very much feels like if you peeled back all the layers of this reality, 
and this existence in the way that we sense it, you would get to a moment where you can either know the particles inside or outside the bucket, but you can't know, you don't know ahead of time where it's, it's both, you know, mm -hmm. as soon as you go to observe it, you either know where it's going or you know where it was, <laughs> but you can't mm -hmm. know both. No, and right. so I kind of, I kind of think of, uh, I think of consciousness in that way. And of course, anesthesia, I believe disrupts that, quantum state b between neurons you know i'm this neuron's either going to connect to this one or this one and there's one moment where it's connected to both or neither or maybe this one or this one or it's doing absolutely nothing but until it touch until it makes the connection you don't know what it's going to be where i believe that anesthesia itself eliminates that probability from occurring and the more neurons probabilities that go to neither making no decision at all, making no connection at all, that's consciousness shutting down to, mm -hmm. you know, I don't believe the consciousness zero, zero state is I'm connecting or I'm not connected. Um, or it's a maybe, I think consciousness when it's removed, it is the, the, the neurons aren't doing uh, Whatever would be, be like when even when you have a binary conception of something happening, it's either this or that. It's either left or right. It's up or down. I believe there's a third option. Well, there's fourth option too, but it's either either one, and then there's neither. So imagine if I'm supposed to tell you where to go, and I tell you you can't go right or left. Mm -hmm. I know, I, but you have to go, but you're not going right or left. Yeah. And those are your only two choices. You're like, that doesn't make any sense. Because as soon as you pick right or left, you can't go the other way. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's kind of how I've come to grips with consciousness over time from everything that I've um, kind of learned and, you know, read. And then, you know, you read other doctors are, they've written books about near-death experiences and they've written books about their own experiences. Um, in understanding physiology and then living life. And they try to combine that into a script that other people can learn from. So. Mm -hmm. Okay. Sorry, it's, keep going. It's all right. Um, so let's get back and actually look at, was it Frank? Yes. Let's have a look at Frank's experience from, um, because I always, prefers to look for kind of the material explanations of, of everything first because that's kind of the ground okay. that we understand before we start to jump into the if you want to call it paranormal explanation sure. so um one of the when you posted on on cora it was shared into a few facebook groups that i'm part of and i could okay. see there was a few comments from the um from those that proclaim themselves skeptical came up with a few explanations and i just wanted to get your opinion on on them um so the first one that i saw was uh regarding the serial numbers on the lamps which is to me the most profound part of the experience um, right was these these the serial number was on presumably on the top of the lamp right so the the, the lamp is a has a big half moon shape and then it has a bar that comes out with pins here so that it can rotate in all directions and about two-thirds of the way to the center there was this sticker it was a white sticker with a red silver thing around it 
and it just it had a number in it. It was a, a it was an engineering number for uh, materials at Ohio State Medical Center. I have got I I hate to do this to you, but I've got my wife calling in, and I've got another phone call to get to right now because um, it took it took late to do this. Uh, how late is it there? Uh, it's seven o'clock here, but it's okay. not, time's not really an issue. Time's not really an issue. Um, can you call me back? Let me calculate this. Can you call me back in two hours? Yep. Okay, because that will kill the rest of my business today. I'll get it all done. Yep. Because I want I want to continue because this is because I I actually have several explanations, and they're not all mine. There are other anesthesiologists that have have told me this is probably what happened. This is probably what happened. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know. Um, and what's funny is most of them are just explaining away stuff that's happened in their own careers that they can't figure out. So, yeah, I want to continue because this is the first time I didn't really get a chance to talk to Titus about stuff. Mm-hmm. So anyway, I got to take this phone call. I will talk to you in two hours. Sure. Yeah, not a problem. Um, where were we? Yeah. So we were talking about uh, Frank's experience. We were saying um, ah, that the one explanation, explanation yeah, that I heard was that maybe Frank could see the um, serial number from his position when he was lying down so, on the lamp. Correct. And there is a time in the OR when that happens. And when he came in, um, we were doing CPR on him. So the uh, we took over basically the transfer, came out of the trauma department, and we took him across the fourth floor at OSU there over to OR20. And... Um, I don't think I was doing CPR, although I was doing CPR in the room um, while they were we were doing multiple things that, you know, obviously there were more than one of us there. But there I remember when they were ripping stuff open and they were going as fast as they can. One of the things they do is they flip the lights, they invert them upside down and they screw on the sterile handles and then flip them back. So, well, actually. They screw on the aluminum thing, then they flip them back, then they press the sterile covers over them. So there is a possibility that he had no anesthesia on board. He was on the transport right before we put him over to the bed, and the lights were inverted for 30 seconds. And his eyes might have been open Mm -hmm. because it might have been before I taped them shut, you know. I believe his eyes were shut and taped when he came in the room, but I honestly can't remember that detail. But that has crossed my mind is that it might have been the last image he had in his head before we over and and started going before the blue drapes covered him and the the tape was on his eyes, you know, for sure at that point. Um, And, uh, you know, that was certainly uh, a possibility at the end of the case his eyes were taped all the way to the ICU. So he, you know, that was not, that was not a possibility, but that, that has dawned on me that there was so much stuff going on that, cause you know, somebody was doing an, uh, there were so many things happening in that probably eight to 13 minutes that it took from him to hit the door, to be on the OR for them to crack the chest. Um, that it is possible that, they removed whatever was on the ER. I could, I can kind of see it in my head where they might've, sometimes we take whatever the ER has done for transport off of his face. 
and then we repackage to protect the eyes and ears, lips and mouth and nose correctly. And in that exchange, there might have been a time where his eyes are open, but he would have been chemically probably paralyzed at that point. So he could have had what we, you know, locked in syndrome where you're wide awake, you're just completely paralyzed. But because his heart's not working, the only we're doing CPR on him to get blood pumping. So there is a possibility he would have stared at those. He well, doesn't in, remember. Yeah, in that possibility. He doesn't re sorry, in that possibility, I was going to say, yeah. would, would his consciousness have been completely as if awake? At that, in that stage? It, could, it, it actually could be, because if we had restored good blood flow to, to his brain and he was paralyzed, he might have been wide awake. Hmm. Even though he couldn't pump his own heart and he couldn't establish his own blood pressure, he might have been wide awake in those moments. Um, you know, I did. I, I do very good CPR. I've, I've done CPR with A-lines in it. I'm a big guy. I'm powerful. I know how to compress the chest exactly. I even know how to time the systole and the diastole only because I've, I've literally performed CPR like 500 times. So mm -hmm. it's um, and I don't know how well it was done with the guy riding the cart on the way to the OR versus me in the OR when I had more control of the situation. Um, but it has dawned on me, and, and you know, um, I wasn't the one who brought this up. It was an older uh, mentor, a colleague of mine, that said, well, did you ever take the tape off his eyes when you transferred him over from the ER to the OR? Because if they're paralyzed and you take the tape off their eyes, their eyes are open. You have to physically close them again and retape them after you, you know, I, I would have squirted lube in his eyes to further protect them, and you can't see shit through the lube. So, um, but that there would have been a moment where he could have been staring. And if the nurses in the room were working with the lights and they had inverted them, you know, the writing on the label was big enough that he probably could have seen it because it would have been four or five feet from his face. And it's not like he could turn his head or anything. So there, it's always been that possibility. But, you know, he described it as floating above because he was staring down with us. Yeah. And the eerie thing about Frank was he remembered our conversations like uh, maybe somebody who's a friend of yours that really likes movies, how they quote lines. It was it was very eerie. Um, the the uh, that he had some of the banter in the OR, you know, um, that's, that's the thing. Odd, odd questions. If he was um, in a state where he was, as you say, locked in his body, but still conscious. I don't see how he'd then report seeing the number from above. He'd, he'd report seeing it as he was, Correct. unless he was kind of in a semi-conscious state or a, a, or a subconscious state where his eyes were still picking it up and his brain filled in the rest. Uh, yeah, but I mean, that's... The, the, and, and with the lights inverted, if they're on, there's a tremendous amount of light going up. So even if he had an out-of-body experience when he was staring down and the lights were down, it would just look like a tremendous amount of light. I... I don't know. I mean, I've tried to pickle this over in my head before. Um, you know, the serial numbers were the thing that really, you know, set this experience completely aside from all the other recalls I've dealt with. Because the majority of the recall is, I heard you guys talking about my breast in the OR. That's, or you were talking about your golf game and you weren't interested on my, sur you know, when surgery has gone wrong and a patient's had recall, they say a lot of things. But most of the recall is actually fairly stupid from the ORs. 
Um, pain is not generally something, unless you have a, an anesthesiologist abusing narcotics and they're stealing the narcotics and they're leaving their patients in pain, generally recall doesn't go with pain. Um, it's, uh, it's normally auditory um, or sometimes they'll remember their body being moved, um, you know, or uh, they'll, they'll remember not being able to move. Like um, I at least had a dozen where they're like, I kept trying to shake my hand so you guys knew I was awake. Mm. <laughs> and we're mm. like, you're paralyzed. So yeah, you, in your brain, you thought you were shaking your, um, you know, or I tried to talk to you, but I couldn't make any noise. That's another one that you hear. So are these recollections um, always but, from the point of view of being in the body though? Being in the body and on the table. And they, and they, they, the table was cold. That is all, I mean, when I ask people, you know, describe what it felt like, I get the weirdest answers because I'm very, I be ask very open-ended questions because I want to hear it. But I've heard the table is cold from like a ton of people. And that makes total sense because it's a metal table with a piece of rubber on it. I mean, it, it's, a, it's a cold table, um, which, is, which is really odd that they have this sensation of it being cold and yet they feel no pain and we're in the middle of surgery. But I've also had people where, yeah, I felt a tremendous amount of pressure in my abdomen and we were working on maybe a gallbladder, or I couldn't breathe, I couldn't take a breath, but, you know, I knew I, I knew I was there, you know, but they describe being in the body, and they describe hearing our sounds, or they'll describe uh, the surgeon pushing against the side of their body, you know, because he's leaning up against them, but they can't move, and they're taped to the table, they know, they don't know they can't fall, um, I, but I've heard those things, throughout the years that I've done investigations and stuff within the teams where we look at an OR record, look at the surgeon's record, talk to the nurses, talk to the patient. Um, and a lot of the time, once you can explain to them what happened, you know, people don't sue unless there was a bad outcome. Uh, but it's, but it's, it's been interesting being in on those conversations when, you know, I had my own, in, in fact, probably one of the reasons I was even on those teams that I kept interest in it, um, was because of the Frank incident. I mean, it just, it was one of those things. I just, I wanted to hear one other anesthesiologist have the same complete craziness type thing where there was an out of body experience and, yeah. you know, I wonder how, just, uh, I wonder how many people in the professional fields in, in med medicine and, and anesthesiology and whatever, I wonder how many of them actually have had several of these experiences, but are too kind of apprehensive to come out about them for professional, um, danger to their careers so i it's it's not just professional protectionism of a career um you know if if you know that the thing you're doing is not 100 percent perfectly certain to work and you're doing major trauma to people and causing a lot of pain or you could cause a lot of pain I think you drive yourself crazy thinking that maybe every step I take is not going to produce the results I think it is. And then I might be responsible for doing somebody harm. I think you have to use human denial to separate that and say, no, this is the standard of care. This is what I apply. It's supposed to work 99.9999% of the time. Yeah, I may realize statistically there's that 0.0001, but it's not going to happen to me because I'm going to roll the dice 30,000 cases in my career. I'm not going to be one of those people. Right. 
Um, and so I think there's a little bit of professional denialism in order to protect yourself. Um, and then the other thing is, you know, medicine itself does not attract devoutly faithful people. It attracts questions, questioning, scientific, deliberative, evidence-based type human beings. Um, when you are faced with a four-year program where everything that happens in a human body is explainable if you have the right data. And then you go out and you apply that in residency and in your, in your early attending years, and then something happens that is unexplainable for everything that you just learned. I think, I think that most doctors are not wise enough at those points in their career because they're not old enough to have lived enough life to say, yeah, maybe there's a one in a million chance it's not just all evidence-based, guys. There's a chance we've missed something in the equation. And I think, you know, the longer you live as a human being, I think the more of those possibilities and those, those, those speculative what-ifs, reality is this way or that way, um, you know, one of my kids here found out that Stephen Hawking, because he's doing uh, physics next year, but he was reading how Stephen Hawking in his last year of life was absolutely convinced every human doesn't exist and we're just playing a video game. And we're not even the controller. There's somebody else controlling us that's playing the video game, right? And, and I told my son, I said, doesn't that make sense from Stephen Hawking's point of view, though? He was confined to being still in a wheelchair, and he was watching a video screen of life go in front of him. So from his point of view, it's quite possible that in questioning his own mortality, which was always coming to an end, that that was just how he defined his own, um, his own understanding of reality, so he would be okay with it when the lights went out, you know? Um, and uh, it's... Uh, you know, it was an interesting, you know, I said, but no, we're not all trapped in the matrix, even if the smartest guy on earth thinks we are. I guess that's not how it works. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, it's interesting. But I think that doctors, while they're in their careers, certainly have this huge protective denial wrapped around themselves, mm. you know, mm. because otherwise, how would you go back the next day and slice the next person open? Yeah, because you couldn't right? without, that, without that certainty that. It's guaranteed to right. have an outcome, yeah. Mm. And then, of course, the entire profession, um, you can't ever talk about your psychological problems. That's, you just, get, you just get, get kicked off staff. Yeah. Your, your contract is not renewed on July 1st. It's a real simple process. And they don't have to tell you why. You have a, you have a one-year continuous contract, and on July 1, they tell you whether or not you're continuing and it's not, there's no reason. Um, and they do that. Hospitals do that to protect themselves. Medical groups do that to protect themselves. Um, you know, you have a guy going through an especially bad divorce or you've got uh, a woman dealing with uh, failing physical problems or whatever. And you know, they're going to up <laughs> at some point. They just haven't up yet. And you're like, look, it's, 
maybe not next year, but it, you know, they need to be in a different situation, right? They don't, they don't need to be in our private group when that happens. And so, you know, those discussions among docs suck because you're basically firing one of your own. And, you know, it's not like you can say, well, are you in therapy? Are you doing this? Are you, no, none of that matters. You know, it, it, when you're in an exacting profession, mental illness is completely not tolerated. And so anesthesia is like, is, is one of the most exacting sciences you can be in the medical field. You're, you, there's no tolerance for screwing up. If you screw up in anesthesia, you're gone in three to five years because you'll kill two or three people. They'll look at your records and you're toast. It's, it's really easy, actually. You know, it's like an airline pilot where an airline pilot, well, no, mostly when the airline pilot screws up, they kill themselves too. But the, it's, it's that level of exacting, like, you know, Delta does not tolerate a pilot deciding he wants to land the 747 at 180 miles an hour instead of the, the recommended 162 to 164 miles an hour. He lands that plane at 162 to 164 every single time, or he doesn't fly it. So, you know, but when you take, uh, when you take perfection and expectations at that level, I think the psychology itself becomes difficult for that mindset, more difficult than those that are drawn to uh, art and innovation and creativity and entrepreneurship, where a lot of their mind is always looking for the possibility or the probability of the next thing, as opposed to doing the best, most perfect thing right at this moment in the present, you know? So there's that. I, I think about that. So perhaps that's why most of these um, med uh, medicine based um, doctors and, and folks in, in that industry are very, very much closed off to the possibility of paranormal and other non-natural phenomena that we that we see i mean there's a, there's a non-easily explainable yeah right i mean there's some such as um i don't know if you know dr jeffrey long who's a oncologist who um did research into near-death experiences and had a huge online collection of them um there's pim van long yeah. as well uh-huh all very very respected no, I, doctors in their field I, I briefly looked into the whole near-death experience stuff around that time, um, you know, through the end of my career. Because 2009, of course, my left arm stopped working and I lost my career. So, you know, I had this five-year period where I was really into looking at stuff like that and my mind was, was very open. And then everything became very selfish about, is my family going to be okay? Are we going to keep the house? You know, it was the basic stuff, right? And then uh, eventually when I realized it was a permanent loss and I was never going back, um, I fell into a depression, uh, which lasted through 2016. And since 2016, I've been recovering from that, that moment. And so, you know, and part of that recovering is just telling my story and being okay with telling my story. In, in, in whatever little facets I've included on Quora or Medium or wherever I've written. And, um, you know, I, I'm in a very uh, un, unfortunate position with my disability insurance that I can't earn money. So um, it is, it's hard to know everything I know and then not be able to use it to generate income. That's kind of like, it's cruel, you know. 
29 and a half years in school and no further income. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Um, but on the other hand, no one can stop me from writing. No one can stop me from sharing, right? Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm outside my career, so that never matters. So that, you know, I never would have written about Frank while I was practicing. No. Never would have happened. No. Right. And so I probably would have gone 30, 35 years, and Frank would have been such a distant memory. I'd be like, yeah, weird stuff happened. And, you know, it was a parlor trick. Somehow he remembered the lights, you know. But I, I do remember my heart skipping a beat when I was standing on that stool. I do remember that totally clearly. And because the – I. The the scrub nurse in the room was African-American and she was in there. It was between cases. It wasn't sterile. So we were just standing in there. And of course, there I am in the middle of the room, standing on a stool, looking at top of the lights. And she said, she goes, she said, yeah, she says, that was a messed up case. And I'm like, in what way? And she goes, well, I heard he was dead the whole time. Mm. <laughs> I was like, yes, I know that's why it was messed up. <laughs> so... Yeah. Um, like, I, there's no reason that man should have been alive at all. You know, it, it was, he just didn't have blood flow for so very long. I mean, I think what saved him, honestly, and, and this is just basic physiology, he was cold. So he came in cold. I remember when we went on bypass, he was cold. Um, I mean, his body temperature was low. And it was like 32 degrees centigrade. So it was, um, you know, I, I do remember that. And then I, I kept thinking that maybe the cold had something to do with it, that everything was just slowed down. Mm, and that's why slowed. his brain, mm. yeah, that's why his brain was okay. Um, but, you know, but out-of-body experiences, if you read about them, I, lots of people have had them. Lots of people talk about them. And I'm not talking about near-death experiences. I'm just talking about out-of-body experience in, in whether you want to talk it's um, in terms of uh, like, I know people sometimes can visualize far distances away or something yeah, like remote, that. Remote viewing. Remote viewing. That's what it's called. Um, so I would consider that kind of like an out-of-body experience type, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, and there's certainly other ones where, especially like among twins or mothers and children, where the children are injured or the twin is injured and the other one knows it, but it's not a visual uh, out-of-body experience. It's uh, It could be an auditory or it could be a, 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 a touch physical thing. Mm. Um, so, yeah, I just, um, I certainly, I certainly have run across enough of that that I've concluded that the entire human race can't be lying. Mm. That would make no sense. No. Or or deluded in any way, or misremembering, or which is the common kind of explanations. I, I think a large large percentage of the human race could be deluded, but not all of it. <laughs> you know, yeah. it, it can't be all. It can't be everyone every time is deluded. Mm. And if it is a you delusion, know, it's a very consistent one. Yes, which would make it not a delusion, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I mean that by by very definition. Mm. If, if you know we're all seeing the same exact delusion, then it's reality. Mm. So the fact that we can't explain it might be frustrating. Um, but you know, I, I don't, I don't think that's a reason to discount, you know, I, I know I certainly was freaked out for a while from it, you know? Um, 
I even, uh, it was funny. I even started pushing more, like there's a drug we give, uh, midazolam versed is kind of like our amnesia drug that we give, you know, in the pre-op area when we're on the way back. And I do remember for about a year, um, I used far more of that than I had in the past. Um, just cause I was like, I am damn sure no one's remembering shit. Um, you know, in, in the, in the future. Um, but you know, it's funny cause at OSU at least they go over your pharmacy records every year with you. And I could see that I had this huge uptick in Versed use. And I, I basically said I had a patient with recall and they're like a lot of anesthesiologists do that, you know, but you know, what you want to do is correlate that with your, you know, PACU times and everything. And this was before electronic records, before they really got to the science of how to make the most amount of money in the least amount of time with operations. And that science is developing. But yeah, I can remember doing that. And then I backed off for a while and I only did it when it made sense. And, you know, eventually you get older in your career and you get smarter, you know? So, but then my career got cut short and that sucked, but you know, I would have never written those stuff if it didn't get cut short. So we wouldn't be talking here no, if that right. hadn't happened. Everything happens for right. a reason. So they say, it's just damn hard. Yeah, yeah or <laughs> or we're deluded into thinking that's the way it is, yeah, right? Yeah. There was um, there was a question I wanted to ask you that I promised um, a guy that I'd ask. I think we've you've already covered it, but it's going back to um, Frank's experience. You wanted me to ask. Um, I've written it down here. He says, how can you be sure you've investigated the veridical perception? He's a near-death experience researcher. How can you be sure you've okay. investigated the veridical perception correctly? And what would you say to those who say you're lying? Presumably about um, the, um, seeing the, the numbers on the, on the light. Oh, because I wasn't the only one that experienced that. That was ICU nurses. That was the scrub nurse. Um, the surgeon was actually incredibly dismissive about it. I, his name, I believe it was Dr. Um, but of course it might, it might but I think it was. Um, the surgeon, I remember being very dismissive about the whole thing. And he just said, these things happen. That was it. A whole explanation yeah. Yeah. on to the next case. Yeah. These things happen. Um, you know, as far it. as lying, as far as lying, I don't, I don't know that, I don't know that one would make up that story for any. No. I, I mean, no, if, if you were to be lying, it'd be for some sort of benefit to you, wouldn't it? But as far as I'm aware, you haven't made would, any, any money or anything out of the the account, right? So if if you know if if somebody lies, they do it for money or attention or uh, negotiation or bargaining with. I mean, that, none of this stuff matters to me anymore. I am I am retired on disability. In, in fact, atrocious disability. But I am, I, and one could say that I wrote everything I wrote on Quora and Medium for attention, right? Only I don't check it all the time. I go weeks, months without checking it. Then I, I write for a month a lot on that. But, you know, recently I've been working on my novel characters and outlines and stuff. So I haven't been, so it's not really attention. Um, you know, I think that, um, Certainly, if you're going to develop yourself into a fiction writer, I think that you would be more apt to try things out, right? Because one of the keys in writing fiction is that it has to make sense, right? Because if it doesn't make sense, then no, no you can't translate through writing. 
right, the other person's going to put the book down because it doesn't make sense, right? So, you know, Frank's story doesn't make sense. There's a disconnect between what he expressed and what I experienced. And, you know, I even played it back that someone was playing a prank on me. Like, I actually thought somebody was playing a prank on me, right? Mm-hmm. It's a reasonable but, thing to think, yeah. But over that, over that month or so after he left, I worked with those same nurses. I brought them other patients. And it, it, he really freaked people out. I mean, he freaked a good, I'd say five or six people were truly freaked out by that. Um, and if, if Frank had been like an intelligent stockbroker or an office CEO or something like that, or a lawyer or a doctor, right? People could have said that was a a brilliant mind being associative, maybe caught a glimpse of everything. Frank was a, my understanding was he was a hick farmer that was semi-retired from nowhere, Ohio. He was flown in from, he was driven, I think, to Adena and then flown in and then literally through our ER to our OR. You know, because people were like, well, he probably worked as an electrician in the, in the, in the, and I'm like, I don't think so. I don't think so. I imagine Frank would figure out whether something had power by going, I'll tell you in a second. And and I'll tell you, I don't think I've ever seen a patient more happy to be alive. He, he really freaked people out about how alive he was because he was dead, dead when he got to Ohio state and just shockingly alive, you know, days later. It's, it's one of those things where, you know, you kind of get the whole gamut in healthcare, right? But you just, you don't really see that a lot, right? They come in so bad and they pop out, you know, so, so good. And, um, but no, he freaked out nurses because I, I remember them talking for weeks saying that was the darnest thing and that the, you know, at what, you know, could you have an out-of-body experience? Is that possible, you know? And, you know, I said, I, I kept telling him, I didn't know what his anesthetic level was when he came into the OR. I have no idea. And somebody like an older anesthesiologist said, well, they flipped the lights upside down when they put the casts on, right? He probably just didn't have his eyes taped. He probably looked right at him. And for him, done, story over, right? And when I wrote that story, I can tell you, I don't think that actually happened. I think he, with his experience in thousands of ORs, placed that experience on top of Frank's story because then it made sense to his brain. But when I really think about it, I was like, no, because the lights were over there because we were doing CPR as we moved them over. So they were over there, not over here. And so, I mean, I, I do remember things like that and it just, as, as far as I'm concerned, there's no way this guy didn't read the serial number staring at him up there. How that happened is, so do, you, do know, you think it's a leap. So do you think there is some kind of um, what we'd call paranormal aspect to it as far as our current understanding of how consciousness should work under anesthetic and during, was it cardiac arrest? Yeah, yeah. yeah. So he, he came in after cardiac arrest and um, he came in with very, very minimal heart function and he required compressions to maintain a blood pressure. So um, 
yeah, my understanding of consciousness shouldn't have been possible in him. You know, um, but once we had him on the operating table and once I had much better control of the drugs going into his system and we could directly massage the heart because we cracked the chest, we actually had really good blood pressure on him. So he clearly was he clearly was perfusing everything. He was just cold. And so it is quite possible he was conscious during that time, paralyzed and conscious. But his consciousness clearly wasn't in his body from his description. And his description is that he was up there a long time, like lots of parts of the surgery. And did, did, he, did he talk about um, perceptions that he saw while he was out of his body? during periods where you know he would have been unconscious like if, if he was saying he, he heard you talking about something and you know that while you were saying he, that he shouldn't have been conscious so he asked some questions that were really weird the the nurse she told me that when he woke up he said what does going on pump mean what does coming off pump mean he goes because they just kept saying they 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 wanted to come off pump again and he goes, I don't, I don't understand why. I, that was like his first thing that he talked about. And then she, of course, was like, okay, he's got some recall. And then they said, well, that's normal during cardiac surgery. Sometimes when there's fluid change, blah, blah, blah. They gave him all that stuff. And he's like, no, because I was staring down at all of you talking. That's like how the whole thing started. And then when people didn't believe him, he goes, I was up there forever. He goes, I can tell you the serial numbers on the top of the stupid lights. And then he read them off, and that's when everyone was like, got weirded out mm, mm. <laughs> that first time. And then that next morning, I was I was weirded out. And, and and of course, you know, everybody works on different days and different shifts and stuff. So it was it was it took that period of time, and he was out of the ICU. But really, the conversations I had with nurses over that three weeks that was weird because they were just like, you know, that was that was a big recall and. You know, they even talked like, how do we talk to, to uh, how do we talk to patients about that? How do we, uh, sorry, uh, how do we, how do we deal with that with nurses? Should we have, I remember them talking about, should we have a protocol for recall? Like they were truly weirded out. Like they wanted somebody to go, okay, if this happens again, you do A, B, C, D, you know. Um, so if, if I'm lying, then it was a shared delusion, mm. you know, I, mean, I, I don't believe for a second that you're lying. I don't think anybody, oh, I, any sane person was, I lived, my wife has heard me free. She heard it because we were dating at the time or no, we were married at the time. And she was, uh, I, I, I think the second child was here, but she, it was an infant. And in the wee hours of the night, when the baby would get up at night, I would even question her saying, you know, have you, I mean, has anything like that ever happened to you in the OR? You know, and she'd be like, well, yeah, I've had a case of recall, but nobody is reading the serial lights off. And she's like, it's okay. She's like, it's not like you were the only one they talked to, you know, but I, I can remember I was, I was freaked out that for a period of time. Um, one of the things I think that made me less freaked out 
was that I got onto the committee that then investigated the entire operating rooms incident. So then for me, it became very mechanical, right? I could take my emotional, my emotional veneer got thrown away and I just needed to do this for my department. <clears throat> so that was one of the things that I think helped me deal with it personally. Cause it is, it's, it is disturbing to think about you're anesthetizing these people and you believe you have total control and they're floating around the room looking at you. Mm. That's just not a good see, feeling see, for me that that would really raise kind of interest in me because if, if we're given this anesthetic that we know that with 99.9% certainty, they're not going to recall or whatever. And yet they're recalled in such a way that is completely unnatural to their brain state and how they should perceive a recall. Like it's right. saying, now, if he was, now to, Frank, if he was to, to tell you the truth though, Frank did not receive a lot of anesthetic. Frank was dead. I did not have to anesthetize him. Mm, mm. So, you know, other than paralyzing him and other than occasionally running some gas to get the right vasodilation and contraction that I needed in the arteries, I don't remember. I don't think I gave him anything. I didn't give him any of the Versed. I didn't give him any of the high dose narcotics. Nothing, because I had him on medications. I basically had him on adrenaline and other medications dripping in second by second to to stabilize his heart function and keep his blood pressure. Um, other than paralyzing him, I didn't do much. And I, I can even remember saying, you know, if I'm going to get a case of recall, it's going to be this guy. <laughs> yeah. I think I actually said so that to I the think so the best and only real explanation I could think of then is that he was aware, but only aware enough to be able to take in the serial number of the light when it was flipped upside down. And he could see that number, but maybe not consciously, so that his brain then had to fill in the gaps that he was floating above it. But to, I don't he, see that, that would be then, very specific. By listening, but he then listening to our entire conversation could have put together he was in an operating room, could have put together the entire, mm -hmm. he could have imagined it himself. I, I, sure. Like but I why said, why it would be from a position above? It would be a, because that's not a natural position. I don't know why your brain would fill in no. from a position that's unnatural to you. Yeah, and it was. Uh, yeah, he. I mean, it was. It was very weird the way he described it. You know, just that. You know, I was. I was floating, but I. But I. But I. But I couldn't fall. I believe he said I couldn't fall. You know, like, I should fall, but I couldn't fall. And we're like, okay. Um, but and he remembers, he, like, he, he knew our conversations. Like, it was really weird. Like, he knew that, he knew that I just wanted to give him a shot to get him to the ICU where his family could say goodbye. Like, he knew that I had gone over that with the surgeon several times. Because the surgeon was like, this guy's not going to come off pump, his heart's dead. And so during that, that time when you were talking to the surgeon about that, was, was he in a position where he shouldn't have been conscious whatsoever? Or was Absolutely. he in a state where there could have been? No, no, no. I was still supporting his blood pressure. Um, and we had a mechanical pump running his blood in his body. So it theoretically, it was possible he was conscious. But he shouldn't have been. He, ab he absolutely shouldn't have been. So, you know... I mean, I believe that Frank's experience is clearly part recall. But the specificity of his recall and the position he explained is unlike any case I've ever had. You know, 
if you want to know what I think happened was, I, I, and if you want the simple ex- explanation, is he died. He didn't want to leave. We kept working on the body till the heart, because the heart's a big, dumb organ. You know, if you, eventually, if you can give it oxygen and sugar, it'll beat, right? And then over the next 24 hours, 36 hours after getting it started and everything, he put himself back together. I, that's, you know, that's how I remember it now. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't seem, it doesn't seem odd to me anymore, you know? Mm. So do you think you could consider that maybe evidence more of that it was all in his mind or in his brain? Or do you think that there could have been some sort of paranormal separation of the consciousness from the body? What do you think is more likely from your experience? From the way I was freaked out, I can tell you that I believe this was a paranormal experience. I have done everything I can to rationalize that it was not. I have believed what other people have told me. I've believed what my brother has told me. But yet my mind goes back and says that's not actually what happened. And when I actually think about what happened, I am up against feeling freaked out by the experience. And as a so trained... that's what makes it paranoid. Right. As a train, yeah. that's what makes it paranormal for me mm. is that it freaked me out. Yeah. And your thoughts, so, as I say, as, as a trained anesthesiologist who's dealt his whole life with objectivity, you'd have thought that any oh, anything that could have right. been explained naturally, you would have been in on straight away. Straight away. No, it's more than that. I wanted it to be those things. And I just, I just know that it wasn't, you know? Uh, I mean, I've been in that OR with my wife explaining what happened, showing her where the lights are and why this and that. And, you know, and she's like, she was like, I don't know, babe. I mean, it's it's really at the end of the day, she's like, I wasn't here, you know. Um, so I think when so, um, when Chris says uh, what people, what do you say about people who say you're lying? I think what that entails as well is that a lot of people, especially in these sort of fields of out of body experience, near death experience, turn all lucidity. They all say it's only an anecdote. It's worthless in terms of evidential value. It's, it is, it's a story. I, I wish that, I wish that that would have happened today because today Frank would be on social media talking about it. And then all these people wouldn't go through my recollection of it and, and, and my understanding and re-understanding it in order to move on with my, my career as an anesthesiologist, you know, they would, they would get it from Frank. Right. And you know, the other thing that would happen today is we'd have massive electronic records and we'd be able to go right back and we'd be able to do a lot of stuff that we couldn't do previously. Um, and I, it just, it's, it's a shame because it was uh, a little bit of a freak out call, uh, freak out uh, point in my career. Right. <clears throat> but, you know, I went on and I did the next case and I did the next case and I did the next case and it just, it was, you know, after a while, I was like, gosh, that was a that was a pretty big case of, of recall. And that's what it was chalked up to. Um, I think I wrote it for I think I wrote the story as part of my own emotional processing. Um, because I've written quite a few things on Quora as part of that. But again, you're getting the objective scientist explaining the story because I want the reader 
I want the reader to see and feel what I did and hear what I did. So I try to write in that very, very realistic tone, you know, and I don't know if you've read some of the other stuff I've, I've, I've written that's popular on there, but when I do it really well, I'm in that tone of realism. And so, you know, if it may, I guess if the whole thing made sense, I would say it's fiction, you know, but it, it doesn't make sense. So, which is really weird because like, it doesn't make sense. So clearly you're, you're lying. Right. I mean, you've, have you read the comment threads? Uh, not specifically on yours, but I've read enough online comments to know exactly what it would, yeah, would I be don't, like. I don't know. I don't know how defensive I got with people. I don't know that I did. Um, I honestly don't remember, but you know, I, it's, it's hard to write something from your own conception and then you put it out there and people are like, well, that's not what happened. And you're like, okay, well, that's what I remember. Um, you know, and I, I certainly have worked with, um, I have worked with doctors on uh, both uh, plaintiffs and defense work on legal teams. And so I'm very aware of reconstructive, reconstructive memory, like how you can lie even to yourself. But then the question, you know, at least in plaintiffs and the defense work, there's always a reason they're lying to themselves, right? They're either trying to protect themselves or to, to move a blame somewhere else. But in this, in this instance, there is no gain in Frank's story being complete fabrication. No. And as you said, you wanted to, you want, you wanted to be able to explain it. So if, if your brain was trying right. to kind of false sense you into this memory, it, it would be putting parts together that fit your understanding but as you still right. can't explain it, you'd have thought that that maybe is not an issue. No, I don't, I, I don't think it's an issue. I mean, I've, I literally, it, it's one of those things like, let's say you saw a UFO one night, like really saw it, like pulled the car over, there yeah, it is in the yeah. sky. Big disc lights. Clearly everywhere. not a man-made craft, right? And then it just whips off and takes off. You were so shocked you didn't pull your phone out. Mm. now what you go to talk to people right well you're lying you're lying and you're like no i was standing right there <laughs> right there right and then what would happen to that story over time well was it a helicopter was it that i mean people are going to start adding to whatever you think it was um but i'll tell you the, the other thing i remember is people didn't want to talk about it that was the other thing that there was a, you know, even me, I didn't want to talk about it at the time. Cause I was anesthesiologist, OSU job. Don't, don't talk about this shit, you know? So it was, yeah, it, there was, there was nothing comfortable about the experience overall. Um, you know, I, I wrote it from a, a point of view of being very safe after my career is done. It was what it was, you know. Um, could it have been as simple as Frank seeing them? Maybe. I don't think so. It it was, and here's the thing: the serial numbers on the lights was one thing, but that was not what freaked people out. What freaked people out was the memory of our conversations that he had, and I mean, they were freakishly accurate like there was a recorder going on i and, mean yeah and he didn't is... like his surgeon 
He didn't like his surgeon because his surgeon kept wanting to stop the operation because it was futile. (laughs) It must have been nice for him. Yeah. And I told him, look, at least let me show off my skills and get the porterhouse steak to the ICU. Because we can at least do that. The family was on its way up from Southern Ohio. I mean, I was like, let's not let him die in the OR when we can just get him back to the, the unit. But, you know, and, and it's, those were, you know, privileged conversations between two professionals trying to make the best decision of what they're doing. And yet our patients listening to the whole thing. I even thought that I even thought that one of the nurses had talked to him from the OR. Like I actually thought one of the nurses had gone and talked to him because we didn't um, we did not fight about it. But I would say that we had a professional disagreement uh, about how far to take his care. And I was very young in my career, and I, the guy was probably in his, he's probably two-thirds of the way through his career. He'd done it, seen it. He this guy wasn't going to make it. Yeah. Yeah. So um, it was, uh, but yeah, it was, that, that was, that was the moment. The, 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 the conversation memory was, which I can explain. The anesthetic was off. He clearly had consciousness, so he remembers the auditory but that's not how he describes it. He describes it from above that the surgeon, and he, he, he said the surgeon had a, a spider on his head. It wasn't a spider. It was a pair of loops. Yeah, I don't know if you know what that looks like, but the big loop thing with the, so it's, it's like, a, it looks like, um, so do you know what a construction hat looks like if the construction hat wasn't on it? You yeah. know, that frame that yeah. sits on yeah. your head? So that sits there, and then there's wires that come off it to a big light in the front. Right. Okay. And then he and then he has two huge spectacles that mm-hmm. move out like that. But he described it as a huge spider on his head, and the spider kept looking at me when I would talk. To I mean, there was little shit like that that you were like, you you got to stop. That that's not real. That can't yeah, be real. Can't, right. That can't be real. Yeah. Yeah. So. I mean, it was little stuff like that. It was just, it was freakish about the way he described it. As we say, so, if, if he was just hearing the conversation, you'd, you'd, his recall would be, I was lying on the table, unable to move. I could see the serial number above me and I could hear what you were saying. It wouldn't be, logically, you wouldn't jump right. to, I was up here, I could see the spider on the guy's head and I was looking at the serial number from above. I, I can remember, it's funny because I'm talking to you, like I can remember little things like, it's the darndest thing when you're looking at your own beating heart. <laughs> I'm like, no, no normal situation <laughs> covers that, you know, but if you're, if you're above and the, the spread, you're looking at your own beating heart. I, it's exactly what it looks like from above. I, you know, and then I, I had another colleague because I was working massive hours during this time. Right. And, you know, this was months later and I was telling him about it. He's like, oh yeah. He goes, I, I heard about the recall and the cardiac case and everything. He says, but you know, he says, the things you remember when you work like us, they, they get all blended together. The cases run together. You know, you don't know whether you're dreaming or awake or whether the case happened or whatever. And, you know, it, it was weird because even a year later, like, there was another ICU case. It was a trauma, not a heart case where they had recall. 
And they, I was in there, not on that trauma case. I was taking the case like a couple rooms over back to the OR. And they were freaking out about this recall. And they were talking about Frank's case as I was moving this out. So it wasn't simply me that they freaked, that he freaked out. He yeah. freaked out a whole bunch of nurses. <laughs> yeah. yeah. You know? So it's definitely um, an impact there. So something is certainly very. Oh, yeah. 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 Like I said, my practice changed. I made sure people were asleep after that. Like, even if it meant they took 20 or 30 extra minutes in recovery, I was okay with that. You know, um, I'd rather you not remember anything than go home early. <laughs> so that that's, uh, that's what I remember about that time was, and it's really funny because I'm actually having an uncomfortableness. The closer I get to some of those memories, like I just, I heard him talk about looking at his own beating heart in my head and it's uncomfortable. It's physically uncomfortable right now, even though it happened more than 15 years ago. It's that um, only because memory. I've been sitting here talking and thinking about it. Right. So, you know, if I made it up or I'm lying, well, great. Then I'm spooking myself out with a great story too. You know, I should be Stephen King, right? Yeah. Yeah.